Kids, you are dismissed. Praise the Lord for his goodness this morning. We do love Jesus, don't we? He first loved us. And I am just, I love that song so much. That song has always ministered to me throughout the years since it was released. And uh, I'm just, every time I sing it, I'm just aware of how faithful and how gracious the Lord is. And we were talking as a choir before we started and said, we have to remember as we sing this that Jesus is here. And my immediate thought was, how would I sing this song if right in the back doors we were singing that Jesus just walked in and stood? That our hearts would be different, that we would praise him in a different way. And it's so important to remind ourselves every day of just how good the Lord is and how gracious and faithful he has been to us. Not only through the word and not only through worship and not only through prayer, but also just by replaying all the different instances in our lives where God has helped us and God has encouraged us. I constantly hear Christians say, I don't know how I would do it if I didn't have the Lord. And I usually hear that sentence when I'm in a hospital and somebody's struggling or somebody's in a trial or they've lost a job and they're, they're trying to get through, but they say, you know, Paul, I just, I don't understand how somebody does it without the Lord. And I say, I don't either because we need him to strengthen us and we need him to, to spur us to keep trusting in him. And that's a spiritual principle that, that not only applies to the work of the Holy Spirit, but also has application to each of us. And that's what we're going to study this morning. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We have studied and talked about this many times because it highlights issues that can cripple churches. It highlights issues that, that damage the church's witness to the world. 1 Corinthians is a very sharp warning to the church and to all believers. And here in chapter 16, Paul's finishing up this first letter to the Corinthians, and he tells them in verses 5 to 8, he says, I'm going to be coming soon. I'm going to be uh, in Corinth soon. I may stay all winter. I don't know yet, but, but I'm coming. I'm in Ephesus now. I'm not leaving Ephesus right now because the work here is very fruitful, and God is blessing it, and things are going well, but, but I am coming. And that wasn't necessarily good news in Corinth. That wasn't necessarily something where they were going to put on a parade for Paul because in this long letter that he's written to them, he has really been very strong and very confrontational about their worldliness and about their selfishness and about their disunity. And this is not to unbelievers. This is to believers. This is to a church that proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. And yet it was full of problems. And Paul talks about how they have created obstacles to the gospel ministry and they have created difficulty within the body because of their pride and because of their self-focused thinking. Uh, but Paul says, I'm coming anyway. Paul never shied away from confrontation. Would that I had more of that spirit and you too, right? That he never shied away from confrontation because he was confident in the truth. This wasn't about him, it was about truth. And he says, I'm going to write to the Corinthians and I'm going to be honest. And when I come there, guess what? I'm going to be honest. And a lot of people didn't like that because none of us really likes to be called out, right? So Paul first writes before he shows up and he says, we need to deal with some, some church and some interpersonal issues. And as he does this, and we'll detail what that is in just a moment, we can assume that some people were offended, some people had their feelings hurt, some people were put out, some people didn't like that he was so blunt with them. And we can pretty much assume that reception is not going to be 100% favorable. 
Because all throughout the first 16 chapters, Paul has highlighted and detailed and confronted all the problems that were in the church. Now, let me just quickly list them because I want us to get perspective on how much of a, of a conflict he had kind of created by confronting this. He told them that their divisions, chapter 1, were selfish and foolish. He said, I can't speak to you as mature people. I can only speak to you as spiritual infants. He admonished them for being worldly. He had said, you're not separated from the world. He had called out their pride. He had confronted their materialism. He had said, personally, you're very immoral. And that's just in the first six chapters. Then he continues and he challenges their lack of sexual restraint, their acceptance of divorce, their carelessness with spiritual liberty that caused other believers to be discouraged and to stumble, their idolatry in a city known for its pagan temples, their disrespect for the house of God, their selfish overemphasis and misuse of spiritual gifts, their lack of love for each other, and even their skepticism about the resurrection. In other words, he takes 15 different points of significant spiritual compromise and strongly and uncompromisingly deals with them. So as we know, when somebody challenges us on something we're doing wrong, it doesn't exactly engender feelings of love and gratitude, right? We, we get defensive and we get frustrated and we think, well, who are you to say something about my life? And yet here comes Paul, and for 16 chapters, he addresses these 15 areas of spiritual compromise and says, you guys are really in trouble. And you guys are not only damaging yourselves, but you're damaging the witness of the gospel. And I'm coming there soon. So they're going, break out the balloons, right? Let's, let's greet Paul. Let's make some cakes for him. This will be great. He's coming, and they're going to have to deal with it. And without humility and without significant spiritual revival in Corinth, which we know is not going to happen now from this perspective, because he's going to write them two more letters, one of which we don't have, and he's going to, and he's going to continue to challenge them for the difficulties that they have. Without humility and without revival in Corinth, Paul is going to face criticism and opposition. He's not phased by it, but he wants to make sure that it doesn't become about him, that it stays about the Lord. And he's concerned for his team. He says, I want to make sure that you guys don't treat them poorly because of me. So in this chapter, at the end of this letter, he lays a little bit of groundwork. Let's pick it up, chapter 16 and verse 10. And we're going to focus mostly on uh, verses 17 and 18. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he's with you without cause to be afraid. Interesting choice of words. For he's doing the Lord's work as I also am. But let no one despise him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now. But he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Those are pretty strong words, right? Verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were, with, they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that also you be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. 
Therefore, acknowledge such men. Now, when Paul talks about Timothy and Apollos, we get an indication just how hostile the atmosphere was in Corinth because he says, when Timothy comes to you, don't be mean to him. Don't cause him to be any more discouraged than we know he has a tendency to be. We know Timothy tended to be a little bit more uh, volatile emotionally, a little bit more frail emotionally. We know that from 1st and 2nd Timothy. So Paul says, when he comes to you, listen, you guys, you guys need to not make him afraid. Can you imagine telling that to a church? I got somebody coming to visit you. Please don't make them afraid when they come. Now, why would Timothy be afraid? Well, he's associated with Paul, and we know they're probably upset with Paul at this point. We know that Timothy had a tendency to be afraid naturally. So he says, make sure you don't discourage them in ministry because he's not seasoned yet. Eventually, he's going to take the church where I am in Ephesus, but, but right now, be careful with him. Now, concerning Apollos, our brother, who's debated in chapter 1, many had been led to the Lord by Apollos in Corinth. He says, Apollos doesn't want to come to you right now. In fact, it's pretty strong wording there in verse 11 or 12. He says, uh, he really has no desire to be in Corinth. So we can only imagine what, what was going on there, that this is not an ideal situation. It's certainly not a, a, a place of spiritual strength or spiritual encouragement. Then he goes to verses 13 and 14, and he gives kind of two verses of spiritual training. And verse 14 is really the one that, that applies to the Corinthians. He says, make sure everything you do is done in love. Now, he had talked about that in chapter 13, which followed chapter 12, where there was a big debate about spiritual gifts, and everybody's kind of making a show and doing their own thing, and they've gotten off track with what spiritual gifts really should be and everybody's drawing attention themselves, and he said, look, let me give you some understanding of what spiritual gifts should be. And then he opens chapter 13, verse 1, and he says, none of your spiritual gifts matter if there's no love. So now he brings it back in chapter 16 to the concept of love, and he says, if everything that's done in the body, this is to believers, if everything that's done in the body is not done with the motivation of love, and at the heart of love is sacrifice and selflessness, and caring for the other person more than you care for yourself. If everything's not done with love, then this is all going to fail. And Corinth, the implication is, you haven't done this well. So here we get to this point, even at the end of the book, where he's saying, we got real problems, you're treating people poorly, and there's no love. But let me give you an example of somebody that's doing well. And that follows in the four verses, verses 15 to 18, where he talks about the household of Stephanus. Now he says there are two distinctions about the household of Stephanus. They were the first believers converted in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to ministering to other believers. Apparently they had come to Corinth, and they had taken it upon themselves, we are going to strengthen other believers here. And as Paul says in verse 17, they have done what is lacking on your part. They filled in the gaps. They have tried to, to come in and strengthen. Now, that may feel like a dig by Paul. Well, they've done what you couldn't do. But Paul is saying, look, you guys have problems, but here comes this household, the household of Stephanus, and they have done what is important. And Paul says they've personally touched me too. Because look at what he says about them. He says, they have refreshed my spirit. They've refreshed my spirit. And those of you that love the Lord in Corinth, 
they're going to do the same thing for you. Now, the word refresh there is very interesting, and I've been kind of sitting on it all week because it's a very fascinating word. In the Greek language, the word refreshed has two primary meanings, and both are applicable to us as believers. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down because this is going to be our calling now. The first meaning of the word refreshed is to cause someone to cease from their labor in order to recover and collect their strength. So Paul says, they've refreshed my spirit. They have taken time where they've allowed me to cease from my labor and cease from my striving and cease from the work I'm doing so that I could recover and so I could collect my strength. Now that means that as we see other believers, other brothers and sisters laboring, working hard, serving the Lord, sharing the gospel, doing the intense work of ministry, that we have the ability to help each other and to, and to strengthen each other and to allow each other to kind of recuperate and regain our strength. We can do this by praying. We can do it by encouraging them. And we can do it by taking some of the ministry responsibility off of them. Praying is always desirable. Praying is always needed for one another because the battle is hard and there are many people to reach from the Lord. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, the fields are ready. People are out there waiting to hear the gospel. People are out there waiting to receive Christ. People are out there waiting to be discipled. And we need to labor together, pray for each other, encourage one another, and spur each other on to go do that. So here's a little application for this week. Pick one person and pray for them all week. Or pick a different person every day and say, I'm going to commit to pray for that one person and I'm going to email them or I'm going to stop them on the way out and say, I'm going to pray for you on Tuesday. What can I pray for you for? Poor English, but you know what I mean, right? How can I pray for you? What are your needs this week? I'm going to email you Tuesday morning and say, I'm praying for you today. Just want you to know that. Not trying to show off. I just want you to be encouraged that I'm thinking about you and praying for you today. Can you tell me what I can pray about? And then Tuesday night, prayed for you all day. The Lord's been good. He's faithful to you. Then Wednesday, another person praying for you today. Can you imagine the impact that that would have on our body? We go through our lives. We do our stuff. I got a busy week. I got appointments all over the place. I am out every night. I mean, it's like, come on, Paul. I'm I'm busy. How, How are you expecting me to do that? Listen, somebody in this body needs your prayer today. Somebody in this body needs your prayer tomorrow. Somebody's facing something on Wednesday or on Thursday, and they wish somebody would come along and say, I'm going to pray for you throughout the day. Imagine if we did that. I hope somebody does that this week. Because that would strengthen the body. That's what Stephanus did. There are also many opportunities, look back at the text, for us to share the work of ministry by giving people a break. One of the examples I can think of is nursery on prayer meeting nights. We don't have any, we have we have like two people to serve in the nursery on prayer meeting nights, and without a group of people rotating in, we're not going to be able to offer nursery on prayer meeting nights. Because I'm not going to burn out a couple people who said, "Well, I'll do it if nobody." I'm not going to do that to you. You need to come to prayer meeting too. Now that's just one small area, but imagine if if all of us said, "You know what? Once a quarter, I'll sit in there. I will be the first to volunteer. I will sit in the nursery on a Wednesday night." and hold babies, and get on the floor and play with them, and Randy can speak at prayer meeting, I'll be the first to volunteer. Now, everybody in this church can do that. 
because that's sharing the work of ministry. And how many know that when we share the work of ministry, it's a whole lot easier. Let's break that pattern, and we already have. Let's break that pattern that's all throughout churches that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's not true here, but it will be if we keep going in this pattern. We should have 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. Everybody should have a ministry responsibility because when we share that, look back at the text, the work gets done. And when we do that, second meaning, refreshing gives people rest and revitalizes them. Taking some of the responsibility off of each other provides us with time to be restored spiritually and to prepare our hearts for the work of ministry. It's the concept of the harbor from our church name, that this is a place where you get strengthened and refreshed to go back out and do the work because the work of ministry is hard. The work of ministry is hard, not only because it involves your body and your mind and your spirit to engage, but because the enemy constantly fights it. So by assisting one another, we become much more strong and renewed and and effective. Remember last week we talked about Jesus? His ministry was simple. He had compassion on people. He went around doing good and he spoke truth with grace. But all of those things require spiritual strength and emotional strength and us being refreshed. Now notice what they did and then we're going to turn to a second passage and pray. These three men, Paul says, they refreshed my spirit. Now the implication was that Paul was weary. Maybe Paul was discouraged. Maybe he was tired of trying to figure out how to help these Corinthians, how to, how to spur them, how to get them going. Preaching the gospel and being rejected was no big deal to Paul. He, he, that, that didn't discourage Paul. He knew that was going to happen. Anytime we preach, somebody's going to be offended. Anytime we talk about the gospel, somebody's going to say, that's baloney. I don't believe that. How could you possibly that be that weird? How could you believe something that far-fetched? God came down in, in the form of a man and died on a cross and, and rose again. Really, you believe that? So anytime the gospel's preached, people will reject it. That's not what drove Paul crazy. Paul knew that going in. He knew I'm going to go into towns and and people are going to yell at me and jeer me and sometimes they're going to stone me. They're going to kick me out of town. I'm fine with that. But here's what drove Paul crazy. What drove him crazy was when people that supposedly love the Lord aren't serious about their faith. And then because of that, there's an internal struggle and disunity in the family of God. If you ask any minister this morning... If you asked 100 ministers, what is your greatest heartache? Is it people rejecting the gospel or is it people inside the body not living for the Lord and not walking in unity? I promise you 100 out of 100 will say it's the second one. We know people will reject the gospel. And while that's heartbreaking and while that's depressing, we know it goes with the territory. But when people that supposedly love the Lord don't walk in holiness and don't strive for the Lord and don't, uh, don't act loving and sacrificial, that's what damages the body. That's what damaged Corinth. Paul says, you're believers. What in the world's going on? we got 15 different areas where you are not living for the Lord. But these three men, they came along and they encouraged me. 
And they tried to show me the positive things that are happening in Corinth. And they tried to strengthen my faith. Because I've got to be honest with you, Corinthians, I'm really discouraged. You've really depressed me. But these men lifted up my spirit. And that's a powerful ministry that we can have with each other. Or the opposite can be true. We can actually discourage each other and chip away at the strength of ministry. Turn over for a second to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's warm in here, isn't it? 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because Paul gives another example of this. We've studied how literally depressed Timothy was as he served in Ephesus and how seriously he wanted to quit the ministry because the believers in Ephesus were worldly and they were allowing false teaching. And he had been challenged and criticized as the spiritual shepherd of the church. So Timothy was a bit of a mess. And Paul writes to him and he talks about his calling and about the sufficiency of the Lord. But as he's writing, because this is a personal letter, he gives Timothy a personal example. He says, Timothy, you're not the only one that has dealt with discouragement and has dealt with criticism and has had people opposing you. Go down to chapter 1, verse 15. You're aware, Timothy, of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among, among whom was Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched me and found me. The Lord granted him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you knew very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now, here is a powerful example of the tremendous impact that we can have on people and on the ministry of the gospel simply by way of our attitude. And there's a very significant contrast that's here between uh, between those who turned away from the gospel and those who were supportive of the gospel. On one side, we've got Phygelus and Hermogenes. Lovely names. Phygelus and Hermogenes, who are part of the contingent in Asia, who turned away from Paul. Now, the wording is very important there because these weren't people who just flat out rejected the gospel. Again, Paul wouldn't have been terribly discouraged by that. These were people that said, we are following the Lord. These are people that seemed to accept Christ as Savior, but later they turned back from that conviction. They didn't hold it in their hearts, and they loved the world more than they loved the Lord. Now, apparently that was true of a lot of people. And Paul says, you know, and I don't know if this is hyperbole or real, you know that everybody in Asia turned on me. Everybody in Asia rejected the Lord, but especially these two. This became personal to Paul. Oh, everybody in Asia, they, they, they turned away from God and, it, and, and nothing happened and the ministry was not as fruitful as it could have been. But there were two guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Timothy, you know about them. We've talked about them before. You remember what they did? Remember how they hurt the work of the gospel? We don't have any more information about them. This is it. But we can draw some easy conclusions on the role that they played. Maybe they were the ones who questioned doctrine. Maybe they discouraged people's faith by creating doubt in the truth. Instead of inspiring faith, maybe they damaged faith. Or maybe they directly challenged Paul and tried to discredit his authority as an apostle. And maybe they, maybe they said, 
you know, Paul, that guy, he's not straight with you. And, and they presented accusations and they undermined his character. Maybe that was their role. Or maybe they were just powerful leaders who used their influence to discourage people away from the gospel. Whatever the case, whatever the reason, and we're not given detail by the Holy Spirit, whatever happened, their actions were not forgotten by Paul. And that is the first side. We're going to have two sides of a contrast. That's the first side of the contrast this morning. That our attitude, when it is selfish and unsanctified, that our attitude can be detrimental to the faith and spiritual progression of others. Simply by our attitude, simply by our thinking, simply by the way we carry ourselves, we can damage the work of the ministry. Outside of not being holy and not being faith, nothing damages the work of the ministry and our witness more than believers who are proud and negative and critical and divisive. Paul says, if you really want to look at what hurts the ministry, and he lists examples all throughout the New Testament, Alexander the coppersmith and Demas and Diotrephes who love to have preeminence. He says there's example after example after example of people who have been proud and critical and negative, and yet they're supposedly believers. And Paul says we're going to hold them accountable. Timothy, let me tell you about Phygelus and Hermogenes. We're going to name names here. Because he says they have damaged the work of the ministry. Two things we never want to do as believers. One is create conflict in people's faith, and the other is create conflict in the family of God. We never want to create conflict in people's faith, and we never want to create conflict within the family of God. Let's talk just about the first one for a second. How do we create conflict in people's faith? How do we cause problems in the way that they think? How do we cause people to struggle to trust and to struggle to walk with the Lord How do we damage people? Because every one of us is able to do it. Well, we can do this through our own spiritual decline. When people watch us and they see that we're not growing and that we're not advancing and that our walk is slipping and that we don't love the Lord, that can hinder their faith. When people see us have one foot in the world and one foot in our faith, thinking that we can somehow maintain that delicate balance without stumbling and without damaging our witness and without offending the Lord. God says, I hate compromise. I hate it when you don't have true conviction. Choose a side because I can't have you in the middle. Or we can damage people's faith when we verbally undermine faith in Christ or when we have doubt or when we say the Holy Spirit's not working or when we say prayer doesn't matter. When we do those things we start to undercut the core of what makes a believer a believer, which is self-denial and faith. So there are ways that we can hinder people. And of course, the enemy loves those. And he tries to keep hitting at those. So he creates situations like Phygelus and Hermogenes, who went beyond the pale of people that had rejected Christ. And they said, we're going to damage the work of ministry. Now, we need to recognize that we have a very powerful ability not only to influence people outside the faith, but people within the body. We either discourage or we encourage. We either weaken or strengthen. We either dampen or we refresh. And we examine our actions of what we're doing to see how 
much we're helping the body. Look back at verse 16 and we're going to pray. He says, there's this man, Onesiphorus. Oh, Onesiphorus, Timothy, you remember him. We got Phygelus and Hermogenes. They've done damage. They worked against us. They hurt the ministry. But there's Onesiphorus. And he has often refreshed me. The exact same word from 1 Corinthians 16. He gave me peace. He gave me rest. He strengthened me. He gave me time to recuperate and recover. Every time I was around him, he refreshed me. It was like cold water on a hot day, and it just strengthened my spirit. And, and, and you know, Timothy, I've dealt with a lot of people that discourage me, but I want to tell you, it's even more powerful when there's someone that encourages me. Onesiphorus, he, he plowed forward. He wasn't ashamed of me. He wasn't ashamed of my, of my chains. In fact, he came to Rome and he intentionally sought me out. He found me because his whole goal of finding me was to encourage me. On one side of the contrast, we have discouragement. Look at the other side of the contrast. When we stand for our convictions and we refresh each other, it builds faith and advances the cause of Christ. Every one of us today has the ability to do that. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to go into, to, to Bosnia and witness the people on the streets. You don't have to sing in the choir. You don't have to do anything other than to be a refresher to somebody else. Now, every one of us can do that. And think of the impact it can have on ministry. If this week you and I said, all I'm going to do is refresh other people. I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to strengthen them. I'm going to give them a hug. I'm going to say, how are you doing? And I'm actually going to listen. And I am going to be a support and a strength. If they're tired and they're weary, I'm going to say, let me serve for you this week. Let me help. What can I do to minister to you? If every one of us took that role, the cause of Christ would go forward like we couldn't believe. But Corinth was living proof. We think about ourselves. Nothing happens. Now, how do we prove this? And how do we practically apply this principle to our lives? We're sitting in church, so it's, it's not like we're not willing to publicly say we're connected to Christianity somehow. But the real proving ground of the authenticity and strength of our convictions, listen now, the real proving ground of the authenticity and strength of our convictions is not in this room. We don't prove we're Christians by coming to church. The real challenge comes when we're with people that don't hold our convictions and that question us or mock us or say, well, I'm not going to associate with you if you're going to take a stand for the Lord and you're going to choose holy living over participation with what the world values. I don't want to be around you. They may not threaten their lives like they did with Paul, but they may say, well, I don't want to be friends with you. I'm going to have a different opinion of you. That's, that's it. And it may be subtle and it may be unspoken, but we feel it. How do we choose then? In those situations, are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we ashamed of disappointing somebody who doesn't love the gospel? Or do we say, you know what? If that's going to be the dividing line, if I can't live my faith out and, and you can't be my friend because of that, I'm sorry, I have to live out my faith. 
and I'm still going to love you, and I'm still going to minister to you, but I will not compromise my convictions because you're threatening me with my friendship. Do we do that? Or do we say, well, I'll just I'll give in here, or I'll, I don't want to disappoint you. And See, it would have been so easy for Onesiphorus to not associate with Paul. And Paul probably wouldn't have thought twice of it. This wasn't Barnabas or Timothy or Epaphras who if they hadn't sought him out, he would have said, what's going on? What's the deal with that? Timothy, why aren't you here? Epaphras, what's going on? You're my encourager. Where are you? It's not like he's going, this is Onesiphorus. He's only mentioned twice in the Bible, both in this book. Chapter 4, he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus. He only gets two mentions. But Paul says, you don't understand, Timothy, how much he has helped me and how much he has refreshed my spirit and how much he has encouraged me. And I don't think it was by visiting or by bringing books or by bringing food or anything like that. Those things were important. I think what encouraged Paul so much about Onesiphorus is that he stood by his convictions and he says, I am going to make it my goal to refresh you. You know, about two years ago, we took a tagline for the church that this is a place to be refreshed. And it carried through with the concept of the harbor being the place where you come in from the work and you you restore and you restock and you refresh and you get strength and be recharged to go back and do the work. Now, it is my goal as the pastor of this church, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, that this will always be a place where anybody who comes in here will be refreshed. And one of three, uh, excuse me, in three different ways. My goal and my prayer is that this church will always refresh you spiritually. That doesn't mean we're always going to make it easy. It means that we need to all be challenged and confronted and encouraged and strengthened and prepared to go out and serve and empowered to be strong examples of people who stand for their faith. That is our job as a church, to be refreshed spiritually. It is also our job to be refreshed intellectually, that we're challenged and inspired and educated and pushed forward to maturity, that all of us, as we studied in 1 Peter, are moving on to maturity. And then interpersonally, we need to be refreshed, strengthened, encouraged, supported, cared for, loved, that it's genuine, that there's power in the body of Christ, that when you come here, as I've seen a couple posts on Facebook this week, that this is the family. If we can do that as a church, our ministry will be incredible. But our effectiveness in these three areas is not dependent on preaching or on worship or on the choir or on the prayer band or on adult education or on youth or or children or anything else. Where we will be evaluated is whether you and I love the Lord every day. And whether you and I walk faithfully with Him and stand for our convictions and tell people that don't know Jesus Christ, God loves you. The evaluation of us refreshing is not in programs. Even the concept of giving people rest, that's not just about, hey, I know you're tired of ministry, let me take your shift this week. This is about giving people rest spiritually. Because right now, I'm telling you, we know this, right? The world is churning. I can't think of a better word right now for what's going on in the world 
than that it is churning. There's typhoons in the Philippines. There's war in the Middle East. There's tension about the economy. Nobody knows if we can trust the government. I mean, it is just a royal mess. And people are feeling it. People are churning internally. And we're able to say, you know what? There's rest for your spirit. There are answers that you need. Let me tell you about the love of God. Let me tell you how much God is willing to free you from the bondage of sin. Let me tell you the extent to which God went through to recover you out of bondage and bring you into new life. Let me tell you. You talk about refreshing somebody's spirit. That'll do it. It starts here. We need to be a Stephanus and a Fortunatus and a Cacus and an Onesiphorus. These aren't exactly exciting names, are they? I want to be a Stephanatus to serve, whatever the word is. I'm a Fortunatus. I'm going to be Fortunatus this week. It's like some kind of Greek god. It's not Peter and Paul. Oh, I wish I had the ministry of Peter and Paul. Yeah, but you know what? I'd, I'd rather start with having the ministry of Fortunatus, who refreshed the spirit of Paul. And that had a huge impact on Paul. And then Paul had an impact on the lives of tens of thousands of people. Listen, I'm done. You and I can do exactly the same thing that those four men did. We can do it right now. It doesn't require any training. It doesn't require any real sacrifice. It just requires looking around and saying, I am going to refresh you this week. I'm going to encourage you this week. I'm going to give you rest this week. And I'm going to pray for you this week. And at the end of the week, you're going to be encouraged. And you're going to be refreshed. And we're going to go do the work of ministry. Let's close our eyes. Lord, this is a great calling that you have given to us. And Father, I have to believe in my heart this morning that this is a principle that we don't value quite enough. We talk about a lot of things in ministry, but this concept, Lord, of refreshing each other and encouraging each other and strengthening each other is so needed. Lord, all throughout this room this morning, there are people that are hurting. There are people that are lonely. There are people that need social connection. There are people that are fearful because of what's going on in their life or what's going on in the world. There are people that need prayer. Lord, I think those descriptions match every single one of us. Father, we have the opportunity and you have called us to this opportunity to strengthen and build up each other so that we can do the work of ministry that you have called us to. Lord, I pray this week you would inspire my heart, that you would inspire our hearts, that we would be a refreshing to each other's spirits.
that we would look around us to those that we come in contact that don't know you, that don't trust you yet, and we would talk to them about the refreshing of your grace. How you can pull people out of that churning in their soul and give them peace and give them confidence in your salvation. Lord, the enemy is going to work very hard. He's working right now to tell that this is not truth, to convince us that this is not necessary, to get us to think about ourselves and to say, I'm just trying to do my best, but Lord, we have to look outwardly now. And I pray that that would be a hallmark of this church, that we truly would be able to live up to the phrase, a place to be refreshed. Lord, start it today, we pray. Challenge us and convict us where we're unwilling to do this. Help us to see the benefit as other people do it for us. And Lord, use us in a mighty way, we pray. We thank you and praise you for these men who refreshed Paul's spirit. We pray that we will model their actions in our lives and walk in purity and holiness every single day as we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.